0: I was reading in the uh, paper this week, an editorial, and it uh, stated that there was a time, only a few decades ago, when Times Square was the most exciting place on the face of the earth. People flocked there, the crowds, it represented something to the entire world. This week, Alex Parker, who owns number one Times Square, The most photographed building in the world at the heart of the square has draped his building in black cloth. He did it to mourn the low estate to which the square has fallen. He said he was so fed up with the pornography in the area that he may make the black drapings permanent as well as leave the circling news lights dark. So distressed is he over the sex sickness in the area that he may cancel use of his building in the New Year's Eve celebrations, which are televised nationally each year. Maybe that can kind of serve as a symbol, draping Times Square, the building there, of the drapery that we ought to hang around the country. Maybe it ought to be Congress that's draped, or maybe it ought to be every Capital city, every state. America draped in black. As we look at the situation of our nation and the dark days that she faces and her sin, Uh, God said the sin of Judah was written with a pen of iron, and uh, so it would seem with America. Uh, We have under In this section of Jeremiah chapter 15, the, first the determination of the Lord concerning Judah's overthrow. In uh, verse 1, he speaks of the ineffectiveness of intercession now. Then said the Lord unto me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my mind could not be toward this people. There was a time when intercession would have prevailed. I sought for a man that would stand in the gap and make up the hedge before me for the land, that I not destroy it. But I found none, and now it's too late. A nation can send away its day of grace just as an individual can and uh, go beyond God's limit of patience and long suffering. And God said to Jeremiah earlier, do not pray for this nation anymore. And he says, though even Samuel or Moses were to intercede, I would not hear. The indication of his decision, that they would go forth, cast them out of my sight, and let them go forth. And to what they would go forth? It shall come to pass, if they say unto thee, Whither shall we go forth? Then thou shalt say to them, Thus saith the Lord, such as are for death to death, such as are for the sword to the sword, such as are for famine to the famine, and such as are for the captivity to the captivity. Some would go into captivity, of course, the Babylonian captivity primarily. The determination of the Lord. Second, the depression of the prophet. This depresses Jeremiah tremendously. In verse 10, he says, Woe is me! my mother, that thou hast borne me a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. He says, I wish I'd never been born. And he speaks of the inundation with strife and contention. Everywhere I go, he says, I only bring a message of doom and destruction, and I'm a source of contention. Everybody hates me because of what I preach continually. I'm controversial unendingly, Uh, woe is me, a man of strife and contention for the whole earth, and his innocence of character, he says, yet uh, I have neither lent on usury, nor have men lent to me on usury, yet every one of them doth curse me. He said, I'm innocent of any reason to be a source of contention, except I have faithfully delivered your message. And uh, he is so depressed. The determination of the Lord, the depression of the prophet. Third, the mitigation promised by the Lord. In verse 11, the Lord said, Verily it shall be well with thy remnant. Verily I will cause the enemy to entreat thee well in the time of evil and in the time of affliction. God assures him that he'll make it, that he'll survive this, and that in the long run he will have him entreated well. There won't be an immediate let-up. As a matter of fact, we saw last week that it was going to get worse. But God says, in the evil day, I will cause the enemy to entreat you well. Uh, This was fulfilled. We read about it in the 39th chapter, verses 11 and 12, now Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, gave charge concerning Jeremiah uh, to the captain of the guard, saying, Take him, look well to him, and do him no harm, but do unto him even as he shall say unto thee. The mitigation ultimately promised. The petition of the prophet. In verse 15, Jeremiah pours out his heart to God now in prayer. And uh, we have the content of his prayer, a petition. In verse 15, O Lord, thou knowest, remember me and visit me, and revenge me of my persecutors. Take me not away in thy long suffering. Know that for thy sake I have suffered rebuke. What does he ask for? Well, he says, Lord, remember me. Don't forget me. Visit me, strengthen me, help me. That's the first thing. And then he prays for revenge on his persecutors. Lord, revenge me of my persecutors. I'm not revenging myself or taking vengeance myself. I'm just committing my cause to you. But vindicate my cause because it's your cause. This is not so much personal vengeance as it's simply wanting God to vindicate his cause. And then third. He prays that he might remain in the land of the living. He says, Take me not away in thy long suffering. God, uh, in your mercy, I pray that I might survive, that I might, uh, my life might be spared in the ensuing uh, deluge that's coming. He prays to remain in the land of the living and not be taken away with a reprobate as his prayer, for remembrance, for revenge on his persecutors, for remaining in the land of the living. Christians are not afraid of death. We shouldn't be. We know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. At the same time, Christians are not to court death. That's suicide. And we're not to do that. We're not to seek martyrdom. And The content of his prayer, the grounds on which he urges his prayer. It's interesting to notice how he urges it. In uh, the first thing, he points out his appropriation of the word of God. Verse 16, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. The finding of God's words could refer to the fact that God sent his word to Jeremiah as a prophet, put it, in his mind and in his mouth through inspiration, or it could refer in addition to that to his study of the portion of the Old Testament that he had. But the point is that this word of God, as it came to him and as he studied it, he assimilated it into his life. It became a part of him. He loved the word of God. It was the joy and rejoicing of his heart. Uh, The statutes of the Lord are pure and righteous altogether. The commandments of the Lord, all of these things nourished and strengthened and blessed his heart, as the psalmist said they did his. They are sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. And he incorporated them into his lifestyle. He didn't just look at the word or just taste the word, he ate the word. He made it a part of his whole approach to life, that he would live by the Word of God. Have you done that? Nor have you tasted it and found it demanding and difficult and humbling and not appropriated it into your lifestyle. Because he appropriated it into his lifestyle, he became a source of contention and a man of strife, because he was living differently and his message was different. It was a warning, it was a demand that men turn, and he became a source of contention because of his love for the word of God and his appropriation of it. He speaks of his relation to God. He says in the last part of that 16th verse, "'For I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts.'" God, I ask that you answer my prayer. That you remember me, that you revenge me of my persecutors, that I remain in the land of the living? Not only because I have appropriated your word, but because of my relation to you. I'm called by your name. I belong to you. I'm one of your children. You're my heavenly Father. Can you say that? Could you urge your prayers on that basis, that you have assurance of your relationship to God? The third thing that he mentions, his separation from evil or from the enemies of the Lord. He says in verse 17, I sat not in the assembly of the mockers, nor rejoiced. I sat alone because of thy hand. For thou hast filled me with indignation. I didn't sit with those who mock your truth and take it lightly. I didn't associate in fellowship with them. I wasn't a part of that type thing. And because I wouldn't be, I lived a lonely life. I sat alone. And I was filled with indignation at the evil around me. I couldn't be a partaker of it. I could only rebuke it. Could we pray like this? As our country faces whatever it faces, as our country is draped in black, could you pray like he prayed on those grounds? But notice the attitude, the frustration with which he urges his prayer. You see the content of it and the grounds of it, but the frustration with which he expresses it's all wrong. In verse 18, Why is my pain perpetual, and my wound incurable, which refuseth to be healed? Wilt thou be altogether unto me a liar? And as waters that fail the frustration, the questioning of God, why, God, why have I experienced so much trouble? Why haven't you helped more? Why, why hasn't my ministry been more effective? Why, why, why? You haven't done that, have you? You haven't questioned God's dealings with you or his faithfulness to his promises? He expresses this. He feels it in his heart. He pours it out to the Lord. That's the language of unbelief. It borders on blasphemy, doesn't it? Wilt thou be a liar? What does it fail? The language of unbelief. And we sympathize with that, don't we? We say, well, old Jeremiah was human. He felt about like I would feel if I was in the position he was in. About like I feel sometimes anyway. And I can sympathize with him. But is that what Jeremiah needs? Does he need our sympathy? Does he need somebody to come by and say, I know it's a tough old buddy and I agree with you. Is that what he needs? Let's see how God deals with his discouraged prophet. The admonition of the Lord, verse 19. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, if thou return, Then will I bring thee again, and thou shalt stand before me, if thou take forth the precious from the vile. Thou shalt be as my mouth. Let them return unto thee, but return not thou unto them. The admonition of the Lord, the admonition first to return. What does that mean? It means he's got to repent of his Attitude. He's got to recover his temper here. He's got to be reconciled with his lot, with his calling, with his task that God has assigned him. He's got to shake off, as Matthew Henry says, this distrustful attitude, these distrustful thoughts and feelings, and not give in to them, not allow the flesh and these doubts to predominate as they struggle with faith. He mustn't do that. He's got to return. He's got to repent of this. Put it down. Martin Lloyd Jones, in his book, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. Martin Lloyd Jones, uh, a great expositor and uh, uh, preacher in London, Westminster there, uh, he says, indeed I can put it finally like this. The ultimate cause of all spiritual depression is unbelief. For if it were not for unbelief, even the devil could do nothing. It is because we listen to the devil instead of listening to God that we go down before him and fall before his attacks. That is why the psalmist keeps on saying to himself, "Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him." He reminds himself of God. He's expositing the 42nd Psalm, where David says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him, who is my help and the help of my countenance. He says, he reminds himself of God. Why? Because he was depressed and had forgotten God, so that his faith and his belief in God and in God's power and in his relationship to God were not what they ought to be. We can sum it all up by saying the final and ultimate cause is just sheer unbelief. He said, We've looked at the cause. What about the cure? What about the treatment? Well, in general, he says, We must learn to take ourselves in hand, as the psalmist learned. This man was not content to just lie down and commiserate with himself. He does something about it. He talks to himself. He turns to himself and he says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? He's addressing himself. He says, uh, We must talk to ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to talk to us. I suggest that the main trouble in the whole matter of spiritual depression is that we allow ourself to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the first thing in the morning when you wake up. You've not originated them. But they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking? Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing the self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? He asks. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, Self? Listen a moment, and I will speak to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, Why art thou cast down? What business do you have to be disquieted? You must upbraid yourself, exhort yourself. Say to yourself, Hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note, Defy yourself. Defy other people. Defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance who also is the health of my countenance and my God. That's it exactly. And that's what God does to Jeremiah and tells Jeremiah to do it to himself. Right here. God's answer to his discouraged prophet. We see the admonition to return, to repent, to rebuke himself, and to remove the precious from the vile. That's a difficult phrase. What does that mean? It probably refers to the precious faith that he's allowed to be overcome with these vile doubts. Remove the precious from the vile. That's Theodore Leitch's view. It could refer to the tendency to want to adapt and adjust his message to the views of those around him so he wouldn't be such a controversial figure, and that he must not do that, but he must continually remove the precious truth from the vile error of those around him. Keep it pure. Be faithful to the message, no matter how much pressure he felt. One of our missionaries the other night was being interviewed on the radio. People were calling in. She made the statement that Jesus Christ was the only way that a man could be saved through faith in Christ alone. And, uh, someone immediately took it to a task, said, I don't believe you really meant it that way, did you? And she said, uh, Yes, I did. Uh, Uh, We go by the Bible. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And she was very sweet but very firm. Uh, Even the uh, commentator with her took her to test. Here's the pressure of the world to conform our message to its views and not be so contentious and so narrow but we must take the precious from the vow. We must not adjust our message. What did God say to Jeremiah? He said, let them return to you. Don't you return to them. You let them adjust their thinking and their attitudes to you. Let the unrighteous man forsake his ways and his thoughts and return unto me, saith the Lord. Don't you return to him. Don't you budge in it. With your message. If he did these things, this is the admonition, then there's the promised petition of protection and position. It says, If you return, then I will bring thee again, and thou shalt stand before me. You will remain my prophet, and thou shalt be as my mouth. I will speak through you. And I will protect you and strengthen you. I will make thee. Under this people a fenced brazen wall, they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee, for I am with thee to save thee and to deliver thee, saith the Lord. That's the promise, if he deals with himself doesn't give in to his depression and his discouragement. And so it is with us. We must not allow ourselves to give in. God will use us. God will manifest his power through us as we are faithful, as we take forth the precious from the vow, as we return and deal with our discouragement and our depression, trusting in him, talk to ourselves instead of listening to ourselves and our doubts. The abstention required as a sign. It just gets a little lonelier. In chapter 16, he calls on Jeremiah. Number one, not to marry. Chapter 16, verse 1. The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Thou shalt not take thee a wife, neither shalt thou have sons or daughters in this place. Why? For thus saith the Lord concerning the sons and concerning the daughters that are born in this place, and concerning the mothers that bear them and the fathers that beget them in this land. They shall die of grievous deaths. Again, if someone died, he wasn't to go into the house of mourning, nor was he to go into the house of mirth. Verse 8, Thou shalt not go into the house of feasting, to sit with them to eat and drink. He was to be a living sign of the doom that was fast rushing upon the nation. Not only in what he said, but by the way he lived, he was to live as a man who is inspecting impending catastrophe any moment. The final point: the consummation promised, and its consolation to the prophet. God promised, as He had already promised, a return from captivity; that uh, there would be a remnant; that He would fulfill His promise concerning the fact of a coming Messiah, and so on. And there would be a remnant that He would bring back. A return, verse 14 of chapter 16. Therefore. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north, from all the lands whither he had driven them. I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. This promised return from captivity, and that was a figure of a much greater return deliverance from captivity that God designed by the sending of his Son. The deliverance from Egypt was a picture of the great redemption that he would bring about, the great freeing through Christ when he sent his Son. This springing back from captivity in Babylon was another picture of that yet-to-come great freedom. And it came. Palm Sunday. Jesus. 1900 years ago, rode into Jerusalem to die on a cross for our sins, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He rode into Jerusalem just as had been promised, and he wrote a great redemption, a great freeing, a great setting men free from captivity to sin and death and hell. And that's the most tremendous thing that's ever happened or ever gonna happen. You remember that it was said that the, by Isaiah, that the feet of those who brought to those captives in Babylon the good news that their captivity was over would be beautiful. And then Paul catches that up over in Romans 10 and he said, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If we trust in Christ and surrender to Christ, we'll be saved. Call on Him in that sense. But how shall they call upon Him and whom they have not believed. How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of them that publish glad tidings of peace. Oh, what glad tidings we have to bring. And God is giving Jeremiah in this promised return still an animation of God's great deliverance that he will bring about not only for those captives and for the nation, but for you and me and offered to the whole world the salvation he would bring about in Christ. Is there hope? Is there hope for the future? What's the song say? Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. For I know, I know who holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. We may drape America in black. Maybe that's what we really ought to do as far as what's coming up. If I had to be betting on it, I'd just go around putting black all over, I guess. But even while we hang those black drapes, there's hope. And the Christian man can lift up his head and rejoice. He can get a hold of the promises of God and the person of God. He can find his joy and his relation to God. And there's always hope for the Christian because he lives. The return from captivity, the response of the Gentiles, even that had been promised earlier, and it reminds him of this, the Regaining of his perspective, Jeremiah recovers his perspective as he as he talks to himself instead of listening to himself, as God admonishes him, as he again gets a hold of who God is and what God has promised and what God's going to do in this great future deliverance and already has done. And we can say in the future deliverance when Jesus comes back, he recovers his balance. Notice what he says in verse 19. O Lord, my strength and my fortress, and my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth and shall say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, vanity, and things wherein there is no profit. He recovers. He somehow, through all the gloom and doom and the discouragement, he gets a hold of that great promise of God, that great Relationship that he has and the hope that's in that and that he can joy in the God and he clasps it and he hangs on and he says, Oh God, I do rejoice and I am content with my lot in life. I'll walk with you and I'll serve you. It's enough that I have that privilege. What about it, Christian? Are we listening to ourselves or are we talking to ourselves? If we're depressed, the cause is unbelief. Basically, ultimately, there are a lot of other causes, but ultimately we need to lay hold of the promises of God and the power of God and our present relationship with God. We can rejoice in that. Talk to yourself and keep reminding yourself of that. Then take hold of his promises. The lawyer who lost his family, his three daughters in a sea, this after, wrote this hymn right afterward. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control, that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate, it is well, it is well with my soul. And Lord, haste the day when faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trumpet shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Now let us take hold of such promises. Let us tell others where they can look for hope in a day when everything's draped in black. And if you're not a Christian, trust Christ. Trust Christ, the one source of hope, the one real solid security in a world draped in black. Trust Christ today. Surrender to Christ today. That Christ who rode into Jerusalem to die for you, to be raised, that he might be your source of hope, your help of your countenance. Let us pray. As our hearts abound, Christian, have you been frustrated and listening to yourself? Won't you return and start talking to yourself as God has admonished us? And if you're not a Christian, won't you right now trust Christ as your Savior? Pray in your heart. If you're willing for him to be in control of your life and willing to trust him as your Savior, pray like this. Oh, Lord Christ, I believe that you can give meaning to my life and remove the black drapes. Lord, I want you as my source of hope, and I trust you now to forgive my sin and to come into my life as my master. Amen.